Hello, everyone, and welcome to Human-Centered Security. Today, I am thrilled to introduce Jared Spool as my guest. If you are a user experience researcher or designer like myself, he needs no introduction. You probably already know him anyway. But if you are living under a rock, Jared is, uh, he calls himself a maker of awesomeness, which I'm pretty jealous of. He's the founder of UIE, which is a UX research organization and the founder of Center Center. I love going to Jared's website as a resource. His writing is both funny and very informative. So without further ado, welcome, Jared. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm five, six, somewhat balding. <laughs> uh uh i like walking on the beach um uh i am a ux <laughs> person i've been doing ux work since the 1970s so sort of predates the term ux but that's it's sort of like discovering that's the name of where you live um and uh i have been working with teams to solve big UX challenges. And, and one of the big challenges that is still here and we haven't figured out how to, how to get around is, is making uh, usable uh, security capabilities. So that's, that's, been, that's been a lot of my work for the last few years. So obviously I, I've known about you, Jared, and your work for a long time, but I r relatively recently came across a talk that you did about security user experience, and that's that's why we initiated this conversation. And one of the things that you said over and over again in the talk, and I, I just found it so, I found myself repeating it, in, you know, I try to give you attribution, I promise, but I, I say it over and over again, if it's not usable, it's not secure. So tell me a little bit about that that soundbite that keeps you know repeating in my head, and you know what led you into that. What what got you interested in it? Yeah, so I got that from uh, Dana Chisnell, who who had been doing some. She had been doing research over at NIST. Uh, they had done a a big study of federal employees looking at sort of costs of of security systems in the federal government, and. Uh, what she found was that there was a high correlation between the, the cost of, of, from a usability standpoint and the amount of workarounds that, that people do in order to get their job done, uh, uh, that bypass or potentially leave vulnerabilities for security I and mean, everything from putting passwords on sticky notes to having one shared password for everything and everybody you know the things that that we know are are common problems putting everything into uh paper notebooks um uh or a single sheet of paper uh that they carry around with them the, these trappings are are basically you know as soon as you see any sort of difficult security situation, you immediately see uh, all sorts of hacks and, and bypasses of the security situation of the security. And, and it becomes clear that that if we don't make the experience for 
the the folks who we want to have access to our systems if we don't make that as usable as possible they will come up with ways to make it more usable for themselves and almost all of those will introduce some sort of vulnerability so that is that that is basically the 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 problem that uh we've been dealing with and that is um uh where that came from and and how i now think of security i mean the way to the way to think about security is is it, it's 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 an unusual thing in most of the time in user experience work when we talk about usability the goal is to make whatever it is usable to anybody who wants to use it but in security work it's what we call selective usability, right? There's a there's two groups of people. There are people who we want to have complete access to the things they should have access to. And then there's another group of people who we want to make it as unusable to have access to that stuff as possible. And that selectivity uh, is, is where we get ourselves uh, into trouble because uh, it's hard to create a filtering system that just works without putting some burden on the, the user. And so uh, figuring out how to burden the user the least is, is probably one of the biggest challenges that we still have in the, in the world of UX. Yeah, when I think about it, I think, I think of like attention that's kind of the mental model that I have in my head. You know, on one hand, we're, as you said, trying to keep certain people out, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the people who need to use it, the people who are authorized to use it or authorized to access the system, are able to get to that data. And one of the thing, one of the examples that I've read about a lot that seem, that resonates with me is, you know, thinking about hospitals, right? Hospitals deal with a lot of confidential information, a lot of protected information when they're dealing with right. HIPAA and privacy uh, laws. But also, if the doctors can't access that information, people's lives are at stake. Like that's a huge problem. Yeah, there was the Dartmouth study from a, a few years back that actually. Uh, uh, showed that that doctors would put the safety of their patients over the uh, the security of the system, and that there were all these things that the various systems they used. You know, for example, they would bypass controls that were created to make sure that that when a new patient was, you know sitting in a, a diagnostic device uh, ready to be tested that the person had to log in again in order to establish the new account and that was done to to make sure that the 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 doctor or the clinician were was basically resetting and and starting a new patient record and not writing the data to the older patient record which is no longer sitting in the chair and uh, they found that doctors were bypassing that because the login process was too onerous and too burdensome and creating this risk that they would accidentally uh, save the patient data to the wrong place. 
And so these are the types of things that we we see. And, and when you talk to the doctors about it, they're fully aware that they are bypassing these security systems. They just think that, you know, doing their jobs as doctors is more important than keeping the data secure. And that's, they're, they're not wrong, but the intention of the security is, is important. And so how do we come up with systems that, that do both? And the, the topic that I, I wanted to kind of centralize our conversation around was how designers have more productive, more fruitful conversations with security professionals, because we're typically not designing these things in a vacuum. We're having to deal with security professionals or compliance folks or people in risk management, because this is something that you have to do together. It's, you know, you're, you're involving a, a larger team. And one of the things that you brought up in your talk was using that word tension again, the, the, the tension between UX and the security professionals. And I would love to know how we can have, how we can establish a more common language. And if I had to guess that language would be around risk, but I'm curious what you, what you think about that. Yeah, I think, I think there, at, at, at a highest level, there's, there's this notion of risk. It's, it's sort of risk and safety, right? Mm -hmm. There's, I think of it like this, that uh, a security system is just a safety system. And we know how to build safety systems and we know how to build safety systems that are, that have a good user experience. The, uh, the safety systems, when, when we're talking about safety systems, we're, we're talking, there's, there's basically two types of safety systems, right? There's, there's safety systems that put the burden on the user and safety systems that put the burden on the system. So think of, for example, a, a, a seatbelt, right? The seatbelt only works if you put it on. And so we put the burden on the user to make sure that there's a seatbelt and it's on. And we, we make it quite burdensome, right? If, if you, you can't take the car out of park or you, you, you get an alarm, if the, if the seatbelt isn't properly uh, put into place, but, but it's all up to the user, right? And the user can find hacks to bypass it, right? They can, they can buckle it behind themselves. They can wedge something into the sensor to make it think that the seatbelt is closed. Um, uh, and, and we find these types of hacks all the time. And so the safety system doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't help protect the user in that place, but people have found that it's too burdensome uh to to deal with so that's uh that's one type of safety system but in 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 the same cars that have seat belts today they they have other safety systems like airbags and the airbag system requires no action on the user at all it, it it's totally on the the vehicle the vehicle turns on the airbag system when vehicles put into motion, it disables it when the vehicle is brought to a halt um, and put into park. And so the, the airbag system is, is completely, the control of the airbag system, whether it's in place or not in place, uh, happens 
completely automatically. And so understanding how we might put the, the, the systems uh, and make the shift the burden to the, to the system from instead of from the user, that's huge, right? So, you know, is there a way that we can uh, make this work? You know, the, the one team that I was working with, uh, their users had to re-log in every 15 minutes, no matter what they were doing. They could be in the middle of, of, of filling out a form and the system would log them out and they'd have to re-log in. And, you know, that type of, of security is, is, was, was nutty. And what made it even worse was these were people who were in their own offices for which they had to use key access to get into the office to be able to access the system. So we know whether the door was opened or not, that's being recorded. We know who had access to the space, that's being recorded. So why is it required that we, we have their sessions time out and have them log in again every 15 minutes? And, and this type of behavior is incredibly burdensome without actually increasing security, right? It, it doesn't, the only people who have access to the space are, are the, the people who, who, who would have access to the system. So why are we, why are we insisting on uh, authenticating them yet another time? And so we need to we need to be looking at this type of work. So when we're working with with security folks, we need to understand what the intention is, right? It, we we always think of design as the rendering of intention. And so, what is what is it that the the security folks are afraid of? What are the risks? What's what are the threats? And so one of the tools that we need to use that, that both the UX folks and the security people need to sort of get their head around is our threat models. We need to understand what are the, uh, what are the threats that we need to protect against? Is it really a case where someone who's filling out a form is somehow a threat 15 minutes after they started the session uh, that they they have worked with. So where where is that threat coming from? And is there a possibility we have enough information to be able to say, yeah, that's not really a threat. We don't we don't have to burden the user with that extra authentication step just to be able to do something that we would like them to do quickly. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I actually just had this conversation with an organization yesterday where they were talking about implementing 2FA and it was less around the user experience of two-factor authentication and more of let's just copy the conventions of what everybody else does. And right. I'm not saying that their implementation was wrong, but I feel like that wasn't the best way to go around, go about it. and they just no, left themselves yeah go ahead everybody else is is copying the right. you know, it's it's this you know everybody's copying the person to their left and they're all sitting in a big circle and and nobody knows who 
who did the research, but everybody assumes that, that well, the, the person on my left must have. I mean, they're doing it this way. They must be doing it for a reason. They seem pretty smart. And they're just doing it because the person on their left did it. And uh, and and it's just this giant circle of of everybody copying everybody, and and that's that's known in scientific terms as a feedback loop. It's, <laughs> it's you know uh, it just makes a lot of squeaking noise, and it doesn't produce any value. Uh, it, it's it is not a practical way to make design decisions, and so you know we should be we should be starting with our intention. What is our intention, and and when we're talking about security, it's it's what are the risks of what we're trying to prevent? And so that's key. And, you know, 2FA is a great example because it on the surface, it makes sense. But there are so many conditions, you know, imagine being someplace where your cell signal sucks and you don't you know, you're, you're waiting for a code to come through your cell phone, or you're trying to log into a new phone because your last phone broke and you don't have, uh, uh, you're not connected to that number anymore. So, so this notion that, well, everybody always has their phone, which is the underlying assumption of that. And that phone always, has a signal, so if we send it a six-digit code, it's just going to work. That's not always the case. And and what do we have to compensate for that? Well, someone needed to save their uh, 10-code survivor pack or whatever you know <laughs> you call it, uh, uh, which you know they saved on a computer. I, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. <laughs> And do they know where those codes are? And so, so we we need other 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 ways to to we need to think these things through. We need to think through the the scenarios of what can happen, and we need to deal with not just the sort of happy path of persons in ideal conditions, but what happens. You know, I I do a lot with medical professionals, and and. Cell phone signals in hospitals are horrible. Wi-Fi connectivity in hospitals is horrible. And in some cases, dangerous to other patients. Uh, uh, IT goes out of their way to not let people connect to Wi-Fi in certain areas of the hospital, like in ICU, because they're afraid of the of bandwidth noise creating problems for, for all of the IoT devices that are keeping patients alive. And so the so being able to log in uh, and get a, uh, some sort of second factor authorization is not going to work, which means then you need to have an authenticator app and you need to to have established that up front and synchronized it. And again, is the app everywhere somebody needs it to be? And so, you know, these are these are the types of of things that we need to be able to handle and understand and we need to understand those situations and what i what i don't see security folks doing is looking closely at the places where their ideal authentication process starts to fall apart and begins to be problematic now there are lots of fixes to this right we can 
we can do provisional authentication, we can um, uh, separate out identification from authentication and authorization and use identification as a way to give limited access for lower risk things. I mean, there's a million opportunities that we can have, but we, we need to, to understand that, that there's a lot of variables that control whether someone's gonna have an easy time or a hard time. And every time we prevent someone who should have access to the access that they get, we have failed. And we need to consider it that, right? We, we're, very easy, we're very easy at, at saying, okay, if there's a breach and someone who shouldn't have access gets access, that's, that's a failure. But we should just as equally uh, treat the failure of legitimate access as uh, a true harsh failure that, that created a problem. Well, that starts to lead us into our next topic, which is, you know, the homework that we should do prior to talking to the security team. And one thing I just want to point out to fellow UX people, because I am in and have been in your shoes when it comes to security at organizations, you're going to have to do a fair amount of digging. And I wouldn't and take a whole lot for granted in terms of the emphasis or the investment that your organization has made in the UX of security, because I, and to no fault of their, of them, I don't, I think it's something that doesn't naturally occur to people like, oh, like let's fix the user experience of security. So you're going to kind of have to pioneer and, and pave your path in, in talking to these people. I think they'll be very happy to talk to you. Um, I don't know if Jared agrees or disagrees with me, but I've, I've had very fruitful conversations. But my point is, you're going to, you as the UX person are going to have to do some digging and, and figure out how to best communicate with these people. And with that, I'll, you know, segue to our conversation about these security metrics, these security UX metrics. So what, what sort of things should UX people be thinking about and what sort of types of information can they be gathering to have a more productive conversation with security professionals? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be happy to reinforce your point. I think I think most security folks that I've ever met, practically all of them, are very intent on letting uh, legitimate people have access to the system. They, they, you know, because frankly, it'd be a lot easier to just lock everybody else out. <laughs> I'm sure they right. want to sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does feel that way sometimes. But they also you know, particularly when you're talking to a, a chief security officer or other, you know, high ranking security people, they have a mandate of, of legitimate safety. And it, you know, telling people that the guardrails are inconvenient uh, doesn't, doesn't work with them. You've got to give, a, in my experience, you have to have solid evidence that says things are actually worse because of the security that uh, procedures that we are following, right? And that we can play whack-a-mole and tell people that every 30 days they have to change their password to a completely different password 
uh, that isn't anything like the last eight passwords, which they don't remember, or anything like any other password, and by the way, has these convoluted security rules that, that, that nobody really remembers or understands. And then you look at help desk requests to see how many users call that they are once again locked out of their account and need the <laughs> password reset. And you can start to add up the cost of what that what that can be. And, and I have found organizations where handling password resets cost millions of dollars a year, sometimes double digit millions of dollars a year. And so, so all you're doing is moving the complexity of the of the system, right? There are people who've already figured out that it's easier to just reset their password every time than to bother to remember it. And so if you're just going to let people reset their password every time, you've already gone to a different mechanism of authentication. True. That's a great point. <laughs> and so if that's the case, then why not make an easier method of authentication? And this, may, this makes me think of your story. I think this was your story, the $100 million button. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the guest check, but like finding points of friction where people are dropping off and getting to the bottom of why are they dropping off? Like, why are, why yeah. is someone going to this, going to this page and being like, uh, no, thank you. I'll go, I'll go do something else with my day. Thank you very much. Exactly. Exactly. The $300 million button story that, 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 that was an e-commerce retailer. That was one of our first sort of real adventures with security UX because we had we had not really thought about it before and it and it turned out that it was the issue was that that people coming to this to this website so we, we had thought it was an issue with the usability lab so we were bringing right. people in to shop on this website and they were having trouble logging in because these were very loyal customers who probably used a desktop system at home and they had logged into that desktop system years ago and they were cookied. So the website knew who they were and didn't require their password and they could purchase things they want. And these were people who purchased, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year on this, this e-commerce retail site. So they were frequent users of this thing. But when they came into our lab, they put things in their shopping cart and then they couldn't log in because they couldn't for the life of them remember what their username was because it turns out that they were using email addresses for a username and the average person has at least three email addresses in this day and age. And so they couldn't remember which one they'd create the account with and then they would they would try one and they try the password and of course the the authentication system would um not indicate whether it was the username or the password that had been typed in wrong because you know that could signal something to a potential hacker who's trying to do some sort of brute force thing which thing to manipulate so they 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 were not telling them that. So then they would try one username and a password and then one username and a different password and then a different username and, and a different password. And they were trying to figure out what the 
likely combination was. And eventually they'd be like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to reset my password. And so they then go in to reset their password. But again, it wouldn't tell them if the username was a viable username. It would just send it off into the void and say, okay, look for an email. And they go and <laughs> go into their account and maybe they got an email and maybe they didn't get an email and you know and and if they got the email and it didn't show up in their spam folder or their junk folder uh, uh then they could click and reset their password and come back and so we kept seeing this in this very small number of participants it was this was happening way too frequently and so we we then asked the folks at the um uh, at the e-commerce, so I said, how many people end up on the password reset page? I mean, we're, you know, like, what are the, what are the stats for this? And, and our contact was there, there was like, oh, I can get that for you. Let me go. I'll have it in 30 minutes. And they come back about 30 minutes later and say, yeah, I can't get that for you. I said, why not? I said, well, the trust and fraud people uh, have, uh, will refuse to, to instrument those pages because they're afraid to have third-party code on the on those pages and therefore we don't have any statistics about how many people do this and reset their password or ask to reset their password or any of those types of things and uh i remember so we had been hired by the ceo of the of the e-commerce company the e-commerce company at the time was about a 1.2 billion dollar affair and 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 the CEO had brought us in to solve some other problem. It was a shop shopping cart uh, drop off issue. And uh, but I had mentioned so this wasn't what we were hired for. So I, you know, I, I had daily status reports to, to the CEO because that's, you know, that's what they were paying me for. And and in one of the status reports, I, I wrote, hey, we tried to to get the analytics data for the these sets of pages that are the authentication pages but turns out y'all don't collect that data so nobody knows how many people authenticate which is too bad because there could be something useful there and that's like all i said and, and then i get this message like five minutes later obviously from like a blackberry that said please hold <laughs> and then I get another message about five minutes later uh, from the same account, you know, the CEO's account saying fixed. <laughs> and the next thing I know, my contact who we've been working with, you know, hour by hour uh, uh, says, oh, the security people have had a change of heart and they're now instrumenting those pages and uh, we should have data in a few days. And uh, sure enough, Turns out that the password reset page was the most popular page on the website. Uh, and turn and then so we then asked for all the people who try to reset their password, what uh how much is the shopping carts worth? Because the only time you would reset your password, not the only time, but the major time that you would reset your password is if you're trying to to make a purchase and you haven't logged in. So what is the value of all the shopping carts that get abandoned because people don't finish the password reset process? And that's where the $300 million, right? So on a $1.2 billion company, $300 million uh, was being lost because people couldn't log into their accounts. 
we ended up building a, uh, or I didn't do it, but the client ended up building a guest checkout capability, which allowed you to check out without having an account. And originally, everybody was completely paranoid about this because it would somehow create more fraud, which didn't make any sense, and and uh, wouldn't allow marketing to track things. Turns out that most of the people who use guest checkout are existing customers and you can match up their shipping address or their billing address or their credit card number to other transactions and then know exactly who they are. And uh, sure enough, that guest checkout capability in its first year earned $300 million. I kid you not. So, <laughs> That's an amazing story. Right? So, so why do we have people log in to checkout? Right? There's certainly a convenience element to it. But why do we make it inconvenient if they can't do it? Well, and I think that the other thing that that story kind of drives home is that you were persistent, right? In trying to get to the bottom, the, the root cause of why this was happening, and you noticed something that was strange and, you know, kept on investigating it and kind of kept pushing and tried to gather more and more data. I think that that is going to be something that UX professionals who are focusing on security are going to have to do this is kind of you know we really have to work together to identify this like risk reward which is essentially what you we were talking about you know the risk of not having a login experience versus the reward of creating this guest checkout experience and obviously like who wins right the thing is is that in some places Security is way better than it was, you know, a decade ago or half a decade ago in the uh, Apple world, where if I'm wearing my Apple watch, I immediately log in to my laptop or my phone. Uh, these, this is taking into account the knowledge that they have. And they can, they can authenticate me through the watch and then the watch authenticates me to the phone and identifies me and all of those elements and allows me to change, you know, to set authorization settings. So if I really do want to be paranoid, I, I, I can, I can be paranoid. The one thing you had started to talk about that I kind of want to uh, you know, take us on the home stretch here in our last few minutes is building a shared understanding between UX people and security professionals. And one of the things that you said was almost like it's like a rite of passage of, of watching users struggle to use the things that you designed. Um, I really liked that. So in addition to having security professionals and other people on your team actually observe users, you know, what, what are other things that we can do to help build that shared understanding? Well, I think a big part of it is that UX people need to learn about security. Yes. And they need to Amen. learn about, <laughs> and they need to learn about not just sort of the brute force security of um, you know, we're gonna put up pass usernames and passwords and and change them every 30 days, but the actual language of security of security systems right that we need to understand mm -hmm. threat systems and perimeters we need to understand burden allocation we need to understand the difference between identification authorization and authentication and how you can there's a 
that's a rich palette that you can do lots of things with. You know, I using one click, I can buy a $20,000 camera without ever logging into Amazon. But I can only do that from a machine that I have told Amazon I'm the only one who has access to. And so Amazon doesn't need to authenticate me for that purchase. And the risk is rarely low because uh, I'm only allowed to send that $20,000 purchase to an address I have sent something to before and authenticated with, which means that if Amazon says somebody ordered a camera from your account, uh, uh, I'm going to say, I know it just showed up. Why did you send it to me? And they're going to say, <laughs> I don't know, send it back and we're going to be happy. Right? So the risk is really low, but you know, gift cards, they won't do that way because gift cards don't, you know, if, if someone intercepts the gift card in transit, then, uh, that's cash. They can't recover. That's got a much higher risk than a camera that they probably would recover. And so, um, so they they uh, they are very clever. If you pay attention really closely, you can see that they have really used the rich world of separating out identification from authorization from authentication, and they are really good at at manipulating that. Security perimeters is another thing, right? If if all you know is my if all I do is tell you who I am. What should I be allowed to do? If I haven't even told you who I am, what should I be allowed to do? If I told you who I am and you have uh, authenticated me that I actually am who I say I am, what should I be allowed to do? Turns out that we, we bundle those three things together, authentication, identification, and authorization, and build a security perimeter that basically says you can do nothing or you can do everything. But mm -hmm. why is it that way? I mean, I should, you know, why can't I just check on general status or look at some things that are a very low risk with only identification and use authorization as a way to allow me to control that? So if I know I'm in a, in a threat hostile environment, um, I can change authentication or authorization so that no just knowing who I am should not get you access to this stuff. So if somebody says, yeah, I'm Jared, and they, they access my computer, they cannot do those things, right? So, you know, it's, it's, a, a, it's a very doable thing. I mean, that checkbox that says, I'm logging into this account from a public computer, that's an authorization statement, right? And that, that should allow me to do different things than if I don't hit that checkbox and 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 I'm now authorizing this computer to be cookied, which then allows me to do things on subsequent sessions. And so there's all sorts of well, and also communicating to the end user, you know, what are the implications of checking this box versus not like, what does that mean in terms exactly. of your account security? So you can take a, and you can make an informed decision. Yeah. And before I mentioned, you know, you, that, that we should be spending time observing folks. And when we observe folks, we should be looking at all the places where there is burden because of the security systems we put into place and ask ourselves, does that burden have to be there? 
because most of the time it does not. Right. And as you said before, trying to quantify it in some way as well. So if you, you know, we talked about looking at help desk data, sometimes you won't be able to get access to that, but I bet you, you can ask your friend at the help desk to help you uncover some of those trends um, and try to ascend, assign some sort of dollar amount to it, you know, to demonstrate like this is a huge burden on the organization. If we fixed it and made this investment, you know, we could save X amount of dollars per year. Oh, sure. I mean, a- a- any good help desk manager can tell you how much the average call costs the help desk because that's a standard statistic that they know. Yeah. Right. And they, they get to that pretty simply, right? They take the total number of calls and they take uh uh the total amount of their budget and they just divide their budget by the number of calls and that gives them a a a dollar per call number and then once they have the dollar per call number you can just estimate how many calls they get in a day multiply that by 365 and suddenly you've got the you know a a quick way to establish the number of calls, multiply it by the dollars per call, and you suddenly know how much money the organization spends on that problem. And, you know, these are all back of the envelope numbers, and they're probably not precise, and they may not even be that accurate. But here's one of the things I've learned as a UX person is the minute you start telling people unaccurate numbers, somebody will say, oh, that number's not right. I can prove it. Here's the actual number, <laughs> and then you have the actual number. <laughs> and so, that oh, thank so you, <laughs> thank you, thank you for doing the work for me. <laughs> yeah, thank you, belligerent person. I'm, I am happy to use your number. Let's use your number. It's still a big number, and so uh, even if it's half the size of the one I came up with, and so that turns out to be uh, really powerful. This has been so helpful. What some of the key takeaways that I had were, you know, do some digging. Don't be afraid of, you know, doing some investigation and trying to get to the root of some of these problems. Sometimes you're going to have to have conversations with people, you know, and and push a little bit to get to that trying to figure out some of these metrics, like you said, maybe they're just these back of the envelope numbers, but at least you can get to some sort of estimate. And hopefully, you know, someone's like, no, let me prove you wrong and like give you the actual number. And the the, the last thing, and perhaps one of the most important things, and one of the things that I'm really passionate about is getting UX people to think it's, and learn about security so that when they do have the opportunity to have these conversations, they are fruitful ones, right? Because you you understand the general terms, the general, the, the mental models of security people, right? The same thing that you do when you're doing your research for end users. In that way, I think we can get to more thoughtful, more usable solutions that are still keeping people safe and secure. Yeah, I mean, the the number one thing that that security people will jump to is you just don't understand. So, okay, (laughs) help me understand, right? I want to Mm -hmm. understand and show that you've made an effort to try and understand. And, you know, it's not rocket science. We, We know this because NASA is one of our clients. They have very strict definitions as to what is rocket science. They have told us that this is definitely not it. 
as a last point, just because I'm super curious to hear what you think about this, I think sometimes that designers think, UX people think, you know, security is somebody else's job. That's somebody else's responsibility. And it's always these, it's always like the account sign up, you know, and these types of things that get designed last, if at all. Right. But right. my my point is security is 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 your responsibility because it is a user experience problem. Obviously, it's a problem and it is it's part of the user experience. So in, in our last minute here, you know, I would love to hear what you think about security being the responsibility of user experience practitioners. Absolutely. Right. Because if it's not usable, it's not secure. <laughs> right. And and if, if 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 the inverse is true, right? If we create security that is so uh, poorly a poor user experience, it will force a security breach. And so we are responsible for that security breach. And if we just default to practices that were set up by a UX designer who's not thinking about the actual UX, we're gonna get ourselves into trouble. The, the problem is that uh, the whole experience, you know, the X in UX is experience. Why it's not UE, I don't know. We have to blame Don Norman, <laughs> but, uh, uh, the X stands for experience. And, and uh, if we are not paying attention to the entire experience for all the individuals, we are creating something that is literally inaccessible. And, you know, we talk about accessibility as UX people all the time. Well, having people who should have access to a system be locked out of it, having people having to bypass the security procedures in order to do their jobs. Uh, this is this is unacceptable, and it's it's our responsibility to find and point these problems out. A hundred percent agree, Jared. Thank you so much. This has been so fun and so thought provoking. If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can give me their username and password. <laughs> They can find me on Twitter at JM Spool. Uh, I'm uh, easily found on UIE.com. I can also be found on, on LinkedIn. That's a, that's a fine place to find me. And chances are, once this pandemic ends, you'll find me on an airplane somewhere some week. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Jared. I will put a link to the talk that you did about security and UX if folks want to listen to it. And thank you again. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it was lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me.